If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We will look at two verses this morning. And once again, I want to remind us to go ahead and check our church app. All our notes and everything are, are there so that you can look at it and then save it. And then as you take notes, hopefully you can use that sometime in the future. Uh, I wanted to start off by asking a question. I'm wondering how many of you have childhood friends that you have kept in touch with for all these years and you are still good friends to today? Can I just see a, a sign of hands going up? All right, a, a good handful of you. And as many of you already know, but I think it's a rarity to have friendship that lasts through the many different stages of life. Many of you are still very young, so sometimes when you think about friendship, you just can only think about the context you're in right now. But as you get older, you realize that you're going to go through a lot of different things. You're going to get through marriage. You're going to have your child, and uh, they're going to grow up. Your parents will pass away as you're getting older, and all these things, and you're going to face so many trials and difficulties in your life. If anyone tells you that life is going to get better and it's easier, I'm telling you, look at them and say, you're lying because it will get harder. And I'm not mincing the words. I'm trying to tell you as directly as possible. Right now, some of you are going through some incredible, incredibly difficult things right now. But I'm telling you, life, because of the sin that's in this world, it's going to get harder. And that's why we believe that we need to strengthen our faith for what is to come. And life is so messy. And to have friends who are with you for each and every single one of those stages of your life, I'm telling you right now, it is a rarity. It is hard to find that. And if you do have it and you're building upon that, I want to encourage you to continue to invest as much as you can into this. As some of you know, we have all different kinds of friendships. And some of them are a little bit deeper than others. Uh, we have friends from elementary school, even in high school, and some of us from college right now. And for some of us, we have friends at work. But the degree of friendship is different. And I'm just thankful because for me, uh, over the years, I have many different friends, but as you can start getting older, your friendship circle will get smaller and smaller because a lot of people not, will not only move away, but you will realize in some of the most difficult times of your life, the ones who will stick by you, the ones who are willing to make the investment so that they can still be connected to you will become smaller and smaller. That's why I don't ever believe people's Facebook or Instagram or whatever they use and look at all their friends. It means nothing. In fact, they say that emotionally and psychologically, we have a network of about 150 max. And in fact, even out of the 150, there's only about, what, a 30 or so that are fairly close, even less. And I'm sharing this because I want us to understand that all different stages of life, if there are those friends who will stick with you, as the Bible says, closer than a brother, you, you are blessed. As some of you know, I was just back from the U.S., and I had an opportunity to meet up with some of my friends. And those of you who might not know, I've known some of these guys for almost 36, 37 years of my life. Uh, that's more than some of you even live life. And it's kind of interesting as I think about some of the friendship, and I'll show you a picture here that we just took recently. 
And uh, some of you guys recognize Pastor Dave. He's on the left. He spoke, or on the right, he spoke uh, at our retreat. And these are guys that I've known for almost 36, 37 years of my life. And the beautiful thing about it is that all of them are in the ministry. And we can serve together, run hard after God together. We can do life together. And it was just a great time. We met in Philadelphia this year where Pastor Young is the pastor there. And we were able to just kind of hang out together and not just hang out, but we were able to cover a lot of different books where we talk about leadership. Uh, every time we meet, every year, we talk about different topics so that it can sharpen us. Uh, this group is called Kadad, and that word in Hebrew means to sharpen. As we see in the book of Proverbs where it says iron sharpens iron, we wanted to continue to sharpen each other and develop our relationship that's beyond just surface level having fun but we could build relationships that goes to the test of time uh, and also to be able to help each other as we go through a lot of struggles in life. So I wanted to kind of go back in history. So this is the current today, and this is now 2019. Believe it or not, this actually got started with four of us because the four of us, we all knew each other because not only when we were younger, but because we went to the same youth group, to the same church, and that's how we got to know one another first. And I'm telling you right now, some of them, I don't think I have ever would have been friends with them if it wasn't apart from the grace of God, because I don't think we hung around in the same circle, you know. But all I can say is, but God somehow brought us together. So I'm going to show you some pictures. We're going to go all the way back. But let me just say this. I'm going to warn you. You're going to go through a, a history of fashion, a history of haircuts, and many other things. It first got started in 2002. And I'll show you this first picture. Hey, hey, the baggy pants are coming back. The baggy pants are coming back. Uh, and so this is Dr. Steve, uh, pa Pastor Peter, and then, uh, who, I don't know who that man is. And then the far right is Pastor Dave. And this was uh, held our first Kadad meeting in Michigan. And uh, we decided to meet halfway because uh, they were all in Chicago back then. And I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So we decided to meet halfway. So we were meeting in closer to the west side of Michigan. And this was our first meeting. And we had a great time of just discussing some of the issues of being a pastor. And uh, we didn't really eat that well because it was in Michigan, uh, all the way on the west side. But I'm going to skip over some of the years because there's some pivotal years that I want to share with you that actually made a huge dif difference in my life as well as some of the other brothers who are part of this group. Uh, the next one I want to show you is 2003, the next year, and we decided get out of the cold and get some nice scenery. So this was in Fort Myers in Florida, and we added Pastor Paul. As you can tell, he's the second to the left, uh, and he was able to join us, and he was part of our gospel band that we were part of in on college. So here's the five of us now as we hung out together. Like I said, uh, the person on the second to the right had a lot more hair. So praise the Lord. Um, so this was a very important one because we realized we want to keep on doing this. Uh, we need each other. That's why we said, hey, uh, Paul, we want you to join us as much as you can because he was busy. But we said, you need to join us because we need to keep on sharpening our relationship. The next one is in 2005, and this is a very important meeting that we had back in 2005 because we actually had it in Kenya. Those of you who might not know, Dr. Steve, who's on the far left, he moved with his family 
to be missionaries in Kenya. And so he was out there for about a year or so, and he was just kind of feeling, he was struggling, he was feeling lonely. And as you know, if you're out there just with your family in this remote village, it's so hard to feel the sense of like friendship and being able to do things together, even though God was using him and blessing him. And so we all decided, hey, for 2005, let's all go to Kenya and let's go and visit Steve and let's try to encourage him and see what he's doing and what God is doing through him and in him. And so this was one of the trips, and we were going on this road. And that road was so skinny or so narrow, I, I could literally see the, uh, the ledge. I'm like, Lord, you better be saved. I said, y'all better be saved because we might actually die. I mean, it was like a treacherous road, but we were able to get to this one high point, and we decided to take a picture there. So 2005 in Kenya was a very important one because it helped Dr. Steve in, in terms of some of the things that he was going through. The next one. It's in 2009, and I know, I know, just uh, please have grace and mercy. Uh, um, this was in 2009 in Miami, and the thing about this one was it was very important because one of our friends, uh, he was going through a lot of different things, and this is where we had the talk with one of them. I won't tell you who. Now I'm going to be more vague as we get closer because some of you will. But we... We had that talk, and the talk was there was this girl that this person was interested in, and we we're like, what is your problem? Just ask her. She's a very good girl. And in fact, she, he was set up by one of us here, and he had all these doubts and all these questions. We said, you're going to be single for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, just have some guts and just pull the trigger. And we, we finally had this talk, and... He was questioning, he was going back and forth, but this was a very important one because after this uh, Kadab meeting, believe it or not, he stepped forward and now he's happily married with three kids, so praise the Lord. So it's very important how friends speak into your life, all right? <laughs> very, very important, very important. Um, the next one is 2012, and uh, Dr. Steve was taking the picture. He wanted to catch the sunset, so we tried really hard. Um, but this was in L.A., and one of us here, they were also going through a lot of difficult times because in the previous ministry, it just didn't end very well, so they ended up moving out to L.A., and so we decided, hey, let's have it in L.A., let's go there to encourage uh, this brother of ours, and so we went out there, not only because the food was better and the weather was better, but we just said, let's go there to encourage him and to pray over him, pray for him in the new place that he's at. And so that's why 2012, this is a, in L.A., was a very significant moment, at least for all of us, and especially that one pastor who was wrestling with some of the things in his life. The next one, uh, quickly here, is uh, in 2015. And the reason why this was very important, and especially important to me, was this was right before we were going to come to Hong Kong. And so in 2015, this was around April, and so we went up to Wisconsin in this place called Lake Geneva, and we were there. And I was just so grateful to know that I had friends for all these years who now, as we're, my family and I, we were kind of taking this major shift and change in our lives, that they were willing to be there, and they wanted to spend time because we were in Chicago because we were going to spend some time with our family. So they said, let's just drive up a couple hours and go to Wisconsin, and we'll have our Kadad meeting there. And this was a time that was so memorable because 
they prayed over me, and they were praying that God will uh, use me and our family and the team that were ready to go to Hong Kong to come here to start the church, and it was very memorable. And also, it was very memorable because this is where um, Pastor Young was trying to use his selfie stick, and it, if you, if you, and so Dr. Steve took this picture of us. But if you if you saw the actual picture from the selfie, it looked horrible. So, but that was also very memorable. And then lastly, this was 2018. As you guys know, if can you guys tell where this is? This is Repulse Bay. And so they ended up coming to Hong Kong. And I didn't even have to convince them. They're like, we're going to Hong Kong. And so we uh, hosted them here. And we were able to spend some time, once again, reading all the books and talking about it, discussing it together. And just the friendships that we have seen over the years. And the significance of this is because this is 2018. So three years into our church, about two and a half years and all the prayers and everything that they were praying for, for our church, they wanted to see the fruits of it, and they were able to meet some of you, and it was such an important time. Uh, I think that's all the pictures, right? Um, why did I show you all this? Because the point that I'm trying to make is, out of the 36, 37 years of our friendship, we had to pivot along the way. If we kept our friendship the way it was when we were in high school or even junior high or even in college and we didn't make those pivots that we needed to, then all I can say is that our friendship would have been very shallow and we would not have had a friendship this long. I don't know how many hard conversations I had with some of these guys. Hard conversations they had with me, challenging me in different areas of my life. And I realized that those were very painful moments. But because they loved me and because I loved them, we had to pivot. And we cannot just do the same things that we used to because now we're at a different stage of life. And this is such an important point that I want to help us to understand when it comes to pivoting relationally. Is that in order for us to build these lasting relationships, not just friendship, but any kind of relationship, it requires us to make the pivots along the way, as especially as we grow and experience different things in our lives, as we go through different stages of our lives. It's not just friendships that change, but there are other relationships that change over the years. Think about our relationship with our parents. Uh, that change, uh, that changes over time, and you have to pivot. Now some of you are entering into the stage where even though they still tell you what to do, that you're married or you have kids, and so they look at you differently. I just experienced this not too long ago when I went home to Chicago. I just realized that my parents and my relationship have changed many, many times over the years. And just to see the relationship develop, and I'm so thankful for it, and we could talk about some deeper things and some of the things that from the past and even into the future. And it's always encouraging when they're always asking about the church and I could ask them about what's going on in the church, giving them a perspective from a pastor's mindset and pastor's perspective. And the nature of the relationship, is, it's different. Think about our relationship with our spouse and even our children. It will change over time. And I, th I realized that when I went to Chicago and visited not only uh, Josiah, my oldest son, but also Elliot, my uh, second son, 
just being able to talk with it, it was totally different from what it was before when they were much younger. And having these kind of conversations about the future, having these different conversations that we probably would not have had when we were, if we were just still stuck in them being in high school and me being their dad. But now as they're going through different challenges in their lives, I realize I have to pivot in how I relate to them. Think about our relationship with our mentors and disciplers. It changes over time. There are some people who spend time with you, but now because they're busy or because they're going through other stuff, they might not even be here anymore. You have to realize you have to start pivoting in the nature of the relationship or even trying to find other disciples and mentors in your life. The question is simply this. How are we going to pivot relationally as we go through the different stages and changes in life? If we don't pivot and make some of those changes, we're going to slowly start drifting away from one another. And we're going to go through a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of hurts. But I think these relationships are important, and that's why we must learn how to make the appropriate pivots. I love what Billy Graham said. He said this, God is more interested in your future and your relationships than you are. What a great encouragement to know that he is very interested in what your future will look like and even the relationships that will come your way or even the relationships you have right now. He is concerned about that. And that's why we have to listen to God and make some of those pivots. We want to continue in our pivot series. As some of you have been joining us in part one, we talked about pivoting directionally, how sometimes God calls us in a different direction. That's where we got to be listening to God and obeying God and stepping out in faith. Part two, we talked about pivoting emotionally. As you saw that on the video, how sometimes we go through so many different emotional things, but you got to know how to pivot from those emotional things that you're experiencing so that we can go into the direction that God has for us. And then today I want to talk about pivoting relationally. So let me give us the one thing and just jump into this uh, passage here. The one thing is simply this, that relationships change frequently. So as God's family, we must look at it differently. So let me say it again. Because relationships are constantly changing, it will change frequently. So as God's family, we must look at it differently. I want us to have a whole different perspective about relationships here in our church, and it will hopefully spread out to other relationships that you have, your family, and maybe your co-workers, and your friendships. There are two things for us to remember how we are, as God's family, we have to look at relationships differently because it's changing so frequently. The first thing is this. We have to understand that there is this relational assessment that must be completely different from the way it's being assessed in the world that the relational assessment must be different. As we start off this section, I think it's important to establish several things before we talk about how we do this assessment or to look at some of the relationship as a Christ follower. So let me take this time to build my argument and build kind of like a foundation for the points that I'm going to be making. The first thing that I want to start off for us to understand is this, that we are a part of God's family. That's the first thing that we have to establish and to understand. Out of all the different words to describe the church, 
one significant word and a very important word is family. This concept of family is derived from the idea that God is our father and that we are his children. Now, let me talk a little bit about this theologically so you understand what's going on. Theologically, it is rooted in the idea that God adopted us as sons and daughters through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who now allows us to be born again or reborn spiritually with this new identity and this new destiny. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us look at some verses to kind of help support this idea. And I decided to do something different uh, today is that I'm going to go ahead and read the verse, but all the parts where it is highlighted and it's yellow, I want you to read it with me. Are you with me? Amen? So this way you know who's sleeping and who's not, all right? So I'm going to have it up there. So all the yellow parts, I'll just read all the regular parts, the white parts, and then on the white or the yellow you go ahead and read it with me, all right? So there are a couple verses I want us to understand about this theological point that you and I have been adopted by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that now enables us to be reborn into this new family, which is a new destiny and a new identity that we have. So let's look at the first verse. The first verse is this. John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, it says this. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So once again, we see this idea of we are able to now have this right to become children of God. We are reborn, and then the birth comes from God and God alone. Let me give you another verse here. It says this, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So it could be sons and daughters. So we see here God predestined us. It was part of his will to adopt us as believers of Jesus Christ to become sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Here's another verse as we read this together. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15b through 16, it says this, Instead you receive God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his Spirit joins with our Spirit to affirm that we are God's children. What a great reminder, this idea of adoption because he's our father, and because we are now adopted, we are made children of God. And so now we can call him Father, or Abba Father, because we are God's children. Why is all this important? Because here's God, the Father, and we are his children, and we are now adopted into his family. And as we are adopted into his family, Now, every single one of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who have been born again, are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it's not a weird thing when you say, hey, brother, or hey, sister, because we have the same father. We have been adopted into this family through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have been reborn, and we are now part of his family. And everyone else who has experienced that, they are now our brother or sister in Christ. So we turn to somebody next to you, depending on what gender they are, say, hey, brother in Christ, or sister, all right? Amen. 
Let me just make a quick note here. It's interesting that throughout the New Testament, the word disciple is used to describe the believers. You'll see that all throughout the Gospels, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. But after the resurrection of Jesus, we see the word brethren, which is simply a term for brothers and sisters. Amazing. Because of the resurrection, because now Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again from the dead, because we have this Father who has given us life through Jesus Christ, now He is our Father. He adopted us into His spiritual family, and every single person who has professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why you will see all the time, even in the New Testament epistles, the writings of Paul and some of these other people like Peter, you'll notice the word brethren or brothers and sisters. This is where we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And let me just kind of read this. We're going to read this a couple times. But I wanted to establish a point through Scripture, theologically, and then point it out into this passage, and then point out some other stuff, point it out back into this passage, and help build up the point as we talk about how relationships change all the time. But that it's God's family, we've got to look at it completely different. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read the first two verses. Listen to what it says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You notice how Paul reminds Timothy that everyone in the church is supposed to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even the older people, we are to see them as fathers and mothers. I think this is so important. Because oftentimes what we don't really take advantage of, there are a lot of older spiritual mothers in the church. And spiritual fathers in the church. And because they are part of our church, we look to them as mothers and fathers. And I think this is such an encouragement to some of you who have lost your father or your mother whether through tragedy or maybe just through divorce. Some of you have been brought up by a single mom, which I think is one of the most incredible roles that a person can play, just to raise a child all on her own. And some of you have not been brought up with a father. Some of you have a father, but he's been absent. And so you can look at your life, and I don't even have to get to know you very well. I just have to spend a little time, ask the right questions, and I can tell in what ways your father has imparted, because there are certain things that fathers impart to their children, especially their sons. And certain things that women need, young girls need, from their fathers. You can always tell if they did not have a good relationship with their fathers or even their mothers. And the beautiful thing is that in the church, because we're all part of God's family, we have spiritual mothers and fathers. And so those of you who do not grow up with a father, or you had an absent father, that there are men of God that can become your spiritual fathers. Or women of God who could become your spiritual mothers. And this reminds me the importance of why we are part of God's family. When we assess our relationship with people, we do not see people the same way. 
I'm wondering how many of us genuinely see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think this is one of the tragedies I see in the church, the way people treat each other. I always tell them, I ask them when I see sometimes some things that people do, I go, do you treat your own family that way? Do you treat your brother or your sister that way? You need a perspective change. You need to assess that relationship in the church and family of God. They are your brothers and sisters, your mothers and your fathers, your sons and daughters in Christ. Another thing I want us to think about as we're talking about the assessment of this relational aspect of how it must change because we can't look at it the same way anymore. Not only are we part of God's family, but this is going to be a little bit hard to hear, but this is the word of God, that we must prioritize God's family. I believe in the Asian culture, we are all raised up to prioritize our family above everything. Many of you understand that. Your parents have raised you to put your family first above everything and everyone. And can I just be honest with you? That is biblically incorrect. I'm going, I'm going against not just a little river. I'm going against Niagara Falls, this huge torrent of wave. I'm going to go right against it. And I'm going to be going like this, go, mm-hmm, that's what the Bible says. So I don't care what you say to me, what your opinion is, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. I'm not trying to break up culture, but one of the things I've been telling people, appreciate culture, but when it goes against Scripture, you got to speak up. I understand the Asian culture where family is everything, and there's some positive things to that, but there's also a lot of negative things to that. Look at some of you. I've counseled some of you. Talk to some of you. Your parents still control you. It's no longer God who died on the cross for your sins, who loves you. But it's your parents. They are your God. That's why no matter how hard you try to live for God, you cannot because you have another God that's above the God that is truly worthy of all the worship. Some of you are parents. You can't let go of your children. Because they have become your God. Before they were other gods, but now your whole life is surrounded by your kids. And that's you cannot surrender them. And I'm telling you, in everything in life, whenever we hold tightly and God says surrender, we can either willingly open our hands or he's going to pry open our hands. You try to raise your kids as best as you can, and then they enter into teenage years, and many of them will go astray. Then what will you do? They get drunk, they get they're on drugs, and that's when the parents are losing complete control. You want them to go into a certain kind of school, but they can't get in. You keep on trying to give them more tutoring, and your relationship with them gets further away. I mean, you have to understand that anything that you put above God, that is your idol. So I'm speaking to a group of people in this room that clearly understands that family comes first above all things. And I'm telling you right now, biblically, there is something flawed with that kind of thinking. According to Confucius, it might be great. But according to Christ, the other seat, it's wrong. And let me explain. 
Before I explain biblical, I think I need to epitomize this through a movie. How many of you have seen Crazy Rich Asians? If you haven't seen it, you might want to step out. You might want to close your ears. Go uh, Because spoiler alert. Some, some of you are like, after finals, I'm going to watch it. Pastor, don't do it. Go outside. Go to the bathroom. <laughs> some of us are actually taking that advice. No. They're just getting something. Anyway. There's a powerful part in this movie. How, let me just, how many of you have seen it? How many of you have not seen it? Okay, we'll pray for you. <laughs> let, me, let me try to, I want to show this because I want, I want to try to help us to understand the tension that Asian people feel with this familial, just this family commitment. There's a powerful scene in the movie where it depicts this tension of being dutiful and loyal to the family above all else. And just to explain the story, those of you who don't know, just once again, you could just close your ears or do whatever you want. But those of you who have watched this, and let me just kind of help trigger our memory. There was a scene, Rachel, who was played by Constance Wu, the main actress, and she's playing Mahjong. And she's playing Mahjong with Eleanor. Eleanor is the mother of her boyfriend named Nick. And so the problem is Eleanor does not approve of Rachel, because her son is too good for her. She's not good enough. And so here's Nick struggling through to whether to be a dutiful son or to disobey and to go with his heart because he really believes that he loves Rachel. Now, the powerful part of the scene, and I'm going to be honest with you, I had to actually read it because I'm seeing the Mahjong. I'm like, I've seen that game before. But I don't even know how it's played. So I had to read it on the internet. And after I read it, I was like, wow. It was like powerful. And then, you know, the, the, the director, the producer of the movie, he goes, we did it that way. So only those people who know Mahjong will feel the, the, the power in this movie. <laughs> and those white folks... And brown folks and black folks who don't understand anything about Mahjong, too bad. You better check us out. And all of us who are Asian who still don't know about Mahjong because we're Korean or any other ethnicity, we're like, <laughs> we're like stuck. <laughs> it was really interesting because in that part, Rachel, if you remember, draws a bamboo eight. I'm like, I'm like, what's a bamboo eight? It's a W and an M. It is eight bamboos. The bamboo eight or the eight bamboo is a very important piece. So I hear. And she draws this bamboo eight to win the game. She could actually win the game. But she also, because she's a game theorist, she knows that huh, Eleanor, the mother of her boyfriend, she also wants the bamboo eight in order for her to win. Then what we see is that she ends up discarding the bamboo eight 
which means she simply gave it up so that Eleanor will win. And as Eleanor was like, hmm, Rachel puts down her tiles, and that's when Eleanor realized she could have won, Rachel could have won, but she gave up that so that she can win. In the same way, Rachel was willing to let go of Nick so that he can be a good son and carry the family fortunes. So I said, instead of me trying to describe it, the bamboo eight. <laughs> Let's just watch this little clip. So if you have not seen it, just go to sleep. But those of us who watch it, now you understand. Because I'm pretty sure there's some Asians here who have no clue about mahjong, like me. But after understanding this, I am like, wow, this is deep. Like any movies that are deep, but it's deep, I am like, wow. I was more moved. I, after watching it, I, I started seeing like misty stuff. Let's watch this together. That's what we call the tiger mom stare. I'm showing this because I want you to feel the tension because many of you probably already know this family, duty, responsibility, it's been ingrained in us. But I want to share this with you. All throughout the Bible, we do see the importance of family. But one thing that we cannot overlook is that when it comes to us be, being Christ followers, there seems to be a change of perspective on the meaning of family. Jesus taught that we belong to two families. One is a natural family, which is the family that you were born in. And then there is another family, which is the faith family or the church. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50, and we're going to do the same thing. Let's read this together, and then you read it on the yellow parts. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside as they want to speak to you. Now, these are his real blood family. They want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my, my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is not saying that our biological family are no longer important. That is not what he's saying. But instead, what he's trying to say is that following Christ, following him, must take priority. Therefore, anyone who follows him, as we mentioned before, they're accounted as his family. We are part of that family. If you think about it, this is so contrary to what we have been raised with. Because why? In our culture, we've been told to put our loyalty completely in our family, above any other relationship. 
But our loyalty to God should include our loyalty to God's family because we are part of this family. But I think the problem is that we don't see our relationship with God's family as important part of our walk with God. I think too often we have this consumer mindset that think that church is supposed to serve the family or to serve us. But this is where we misunderstand. Yes, God is going to serve you through different things as you come to life group, to church on Sunday. But God wants us to understand that also families are to serve his family. Joseph H. Hellerman, in his book, Why We Need the Church to Become More Like Jesus, shares about a family who decided to decline a lucrative job offer in another city. It would have been so much better for this family. More money, bigger house, better schools for their kids. What parent is stupid enough to not take that offer? I'm telling you right now, ask any parent you can get more money a better job a bigger house and better school for your kids what parent or parents would not take that these types of decision impacts people not just their family because it would have been a huge win for their family but you know what they decided to do they decided to decline the offer because they were so invested in the lives of the people in their church. Listen to what he writes. He says this. Hellerman writes this. While we may not be faced with a decision to relocate, many of us prioritize natural family in more subtle ways. We keep our families so busy that little time remains to develop the kinds of relationship God intends for his faith family. When we do this, we teach our kids the wrong relational priorities. I mean, this is like a dagger to the heart. The decisions we make, the things that we do, communicate a message to your children of what's important and what's a priority. When we no longer make it about us, then we're able to see greater opportunities about of ministry. When we see God's family right here, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual moms and dads, sons and daughters, because we have one Father, the Heavenly Father, the perfect Father, then we see God's family as a higher priority. When we have this mindset, we can minister to people in the church in such a powerful way. Now, please, once again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying the biological family is not important. They are important. We're part of two families as believers in Christ. But how we prioritize will really tell us what's in our hearts. Even Jesus says, who is my brother? Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? But those who do the will of the Father. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the reason why it is so crucial and so important that we emphasize God's family and prioritize that as a very important part of our Christian life is to think about how many single people 
and even those who struggle with same-sex attraction, knowing that in Scripture it does not say to marry the person of the same gender, so they decided to go celibate. Think about some of those people in the church, in the family. That's why if we keep on exalting marriages and keep on exalting families, we completely exclude them. But if we see each other as God's family, that you are my brother and my sister, my spiritual mom, my spiritual dad, my spiritual son, and my spiritual daughters, it will totally revolutionize how we assess and look at the relationships. And now we know how to pivot and make some of those changes as we relate to one another in the body of Christ. I also believe if we understand this, this will address a lot of issues in the church, such thing as cliques. It breaks my heart. I, I, I have nothing against you hanging around with people that you feel closer to and they're your friends. That's great. But I'm wondering how many of you in any given moment in the church or life group, you look around and there's always that in crowd who's always talking and there are all those people who might just be on the outskirts looking outside in. If they are your brother and sister in Christ, you will include them. So there should be no cliques in the church. In fact, I'm going to be bold enough to say it's a sin because you are excluding the brother and sister in Christ that Christ purchased with his blood. It will address issues of racism. You were not chosen because you were so special. You were chosen irrespective of how you looked and what color skin you had. Now you are part of God's family. If we see each other as brothers and sisters, there should be no racism. It boggles my mind some of the teachings, or if you want to look at it, some of the values that are passed on from the Asian culture. That you cannot marry this type of person from this particular race. That's flat-out racism. And somehow you adopted it because your parents kept on reminding you. And albeit your parents are not believers so that we can be a little bit more understanding, but there should not be racism. If you really believe they're brothers and sisters in Christ and we're the same father, there should be no classism. And I see this all the time. And I even saw this, even, I'm not picking on any particular group of people, but when we were in Indonesia, we saw it very clearly. Those who are from a bigger country that immigrated to Indonesia, Chindos, and those who are nationals. It's night and day. The things that they buy, the things that they eat, the things that they go to, the things that they do for leisure, completely different from those who are in the church who come from really difficult situations and villages, the kampungs, that don't have much. And it bothered me that as I looked around, some of these people are completely clueless. So we had to tell them, hey, don't go to those restaurants. Don't do that because it's too expensive. Not everyone could go because as soon as you guys say, let's go, you exclude a group of people. I go, I don't mind you going. I don't mind you eating some of those things as long as you're going to pay for some of these guys. Because you're saying, you're my brother. 
You're my sister in Christ, and you don't have the means, but I do. And I want to bless you, and let's do this together. If you understand this, it will fight racism, classism, the cliques. It will address issues of loneliness. How about us this morning? I'm wondering if we're prioritizing God's family above all other relationships. Jesus did. I'm wondering if people can tell by your decisions and investments that God's family is important to you. Do you understand the importance of being part of God's family? And what responsibility that bears on you and me. The relational assessment must be different. The way we look at relationship must be different. Let me close with the second one. It will be shorter and simply this. Not only must the relational assessment be different, but the relational attitude must be different. One thing we have to remember about Timothy is that he was a young man. You will notice this even when he was encouraged by Paul to not let anyone look down on you because you're young. But to set an example in life, in speech, and in purity, and everything that you do, set an example. So uh, uh, we know that he was a young man. And the problem was that in this church, they were older people. And therefore, I think it would have been easy for him to favor all the younger people, or maybe even be afraid of the older people. So here's Paul wanting to encourage Timothy to love and serve everyone. Equally. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2 again, and I'm going to highlight a couple things from here. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. As we mentioned earlier, Timothy was encouraged to assess and look at the relationships differently. No longer are they just people or just members in the church, but consider them as brothers, sisters. Fathers, mothers, all these relationships should be honored with the attitude of respect. This is important. I, I wish one of these days we'll do a whole series on First Timothy. It's interesting that when you look through chapters 5 and chapter 6, just those two chapters, the key theme and the key word that you see often is learning how to respect people, this word of respect. In all various relational contexts, whether it's with widows, whether it's with leaders, whether it's with masters, those you work for, it just it's about respect. I want you to look at the first word in, in the, the verb or the word rebuke in verse 1. The word rebuke, a lot of times you think, oh, when you yell at somebody. No, that word means to strike at. So therefore, Paul is saying, do not rebuke an older man. He's reminding Timothy that when we correct a person, we must do it with the attitude of love. Don't strike at them to hurt them, but to do it in love. This attitude of love is to be extended to other members of the family. Timothy is encouraged to treat people in the church as he would with his own family. That's why he says, you know, older women are supposed to be treated like mothers. Older men are supposed to be treated like fathers. And younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers. 
not only should their relationship be marked with love, but at the end of verse 2, I want you to catch that couple words there. We see the phrase, in all purity. The NIV translates it as with absolute purity. This reinforces the importance of respectful treatment of other people. Listen to me. Especially when it comes to the opposite gender and younger women in the church, we have to have pure motives. And I know I'm addressing more guys probably at this point, but it can go the other way. And I have many stories that goes in the other way. But all I can say is this. Paul talks about this again to the people of Thessalonica. Listen to what it says, and let's do this again. We're going to read it together. Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 to 7. Listen to what it says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God and trust in this manner. No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. What a great reminder. How easy it is to take advantage of one another and to hurt one another. We see this all the time, not just in the world, but even in the church. That's what we talked about. You, you don't give authority and power to people very easily. It has to be tested through character. Because that power can be abused. What would happen in a church if we kept all our relationships marked with love and with all purity? According to Barna Group study, it showed that millennials, those of you who are like, am I a millennial? You, you had to be born from 1981 through 1996. How many of you are millennials? Raise your hand. Okay. Some of you gave your age. Anyway, don't worry. It's a 15-year separation, so we don't know if you're on the higher end or the lower end. <laughs> millennials are born in 1981 through 1996, and they were doing a research, the Barna Group, research group, and they decided to ask these millennials what made them stay in the church. And you know what they said? It's the relationships. It was interesting to find that intergenerational relationships was the number one reason why young people remain connected to their faith communities. Intergenerational. Those who stayed in the church, in the church family, were likely, were, were twice as likely to have a close personal friendship with an adult in the church compared to those people who left. Like literally it's 59 to 31%. The double of the amount. That means that if you fall into that millennial age, that means that if you have some relationship or connection to an older person, an adult, your likelihood of still staying in the church is about 59%. Listen to what Dave Kinneman said. He's the president of Barna, and in their research called Five Reasons. Listen to what he says. Cultivating intergenerational relationships 
is one of the most important ways in which effective faith communities are developing flourishing faith in both young and old. In many churches, this means changing the metaphor from simply passing the baton to the next generation to more functional biblical picture of a body that is the entire community of faith across the entire lifespan working together to fulfill God's purposes. That means that the older people in the church, the middle-aged people in the church, the younger people in the church, the young adults or single adults, and to the younger people, even all the way down to the building blocks, if we could all see that we are part of God's family trying to fulfill the purposes of God, it could radically change how we see church. I think this is just a powerful thought for us. How many of us have these interrelational or intergenerational relationships? Part of pivoting, listen to me carefully, is that some of you right now have to be willing to be mentored by new people. You have to be willing to be discipled by new people. So I'm like, no, she's, she's so nice. She loved me so much. Yeah, she spoiled the living daylights. I've never rebuked you. No wonder you're not changing. You feel love, but you're not changing. Maybe some of you are on the other end. You've been rebuked all the time. You're like this little dog. You know. You might need some love and attention. TLC. That's old school stuff. Something I always believe is that God always places different people in our lives to help us to grow in that particular season. All of us and many of us will have new life groups this coming summer and even in this coming autumn. And somebody's like, oh, why? I love my life group. Because the leaders gave us all these gifts. What did you give to the leaders? You go repent. oh, I love this life group because I just feel so loved. Which is great. But now this is a new season. You need to let that love spread out a little bit. Share that love to other people. Some of you will have new life group leaders. You got to pivot. Because that previous leader, they let you get away with murder. Oh, I'm so tired. I can't go to life. Oh, I'm not feeling really well. Okay, we'll see you later. And here going out doing all this stuff. No wonder some of you haven't been challenged. No wonder some of you are still at the same place that you were two years ago, three years ago. Still the same. You're going to have new life group leaders and you have to believe by faith that God is placing them over your life because you need something in this season to get to that next level. You got to pivot. You're going to have new LCG. Some of you are like, thank God. You know, thank God. He never showed up. or He never made that time. Thank you, Lord. I, I, I'm already pivoting. Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Maybe you were the younger one. Now you're going to have to be the older one to help these younger people who have never experienced LCG. Pivot. Find new mentors. Take advantage of them. There are spiritual mothers here. There are spiritual fathers here. Seek them out. Those of you who are older, 
Don't wait until people come up to you. Maybe there's some people that God placed in your heart that are younger that you could experience, you could pour in your experience and your life. How about us this morning? What is your attitude towards people in the church? Is it marked with respect and love? How are you preparing to pivot in the relationships that you need in this season? Are you being proactive in seeking out younger people to disciple and to mentor? Or for some of us, are we seeking out those who are older so we could get mentored by them? The relational attitude, the way our attitude in our hearts, the way we treat and the way we approach things have to be different. So once again, the one thing is that relationships change frequently. So as God's family, we must look at it differently. I pray that in this season of change, that we will be able to pivot and look at relationships in a different way. I pray that God will place and also you will seek in prayer the people that God will help help you and you can help to get to that next level. Let me give us quick things as we close here. First of all, pray for people in God's family. We need more people to pray for the people in our church. Even some of those people that drain you, they are the E-G-R. Extra grace required. Like, all the grace is gone. Like, you got, you got to, you got to, mm, you, you need to get some more grace. Spend some time with God and say, God, I need more of your grace so I can give more grace to that person. Pray for people in God's family. I mean, one of the great things that you guys can do is say, hey, like, some of you guys do it in life group. And those are the things. Like, what are some of the prayer requests? We do this sometimes even in our LCGs or a group of people that you meet together and say, hey, tell me, tell me your prayer requests so I can pray for you. Take each day and pray for different people. There's so many different ways to do this. Some of you, when you get together, don't just goof around. Maybe say, hey, maybe we can just spend some time. It always takes that one courageous person because you don't want to be that, per- that person. Everyone's having fun. Woo! Let's pray. Oh, you know, like... We should never invite them. This is where it takes wisdom and discernment. The party's already dying, and everyone's like, ah, hey, let's pray. <laughs> is that okay? And secondly, pay attention to your interactions. Watch how you interact with people. Is it honoring? Are you defrauding them? Are you taking advantage of them? Ladies, I'm going to address you as well. Some of you love the attention. That's why you flirt. Because if you're insecure, but every guy is paying attention to you, then you feel good about yourself. But you have no intention. He is like the beast, and you will never be with him. You may be the beauty, and he's the beast, and you're like, no. But you like the attention. You're defrauding him because you have no intention of liking him, but you like that tension. So by you doing certain things, it leads that guy on. And that's what, no wonder he's like a mess. Brothers, same way. Some of these beautiful women in our church who love Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who are just waiting for God to bring someone, their, their Adam into their lives. All I can say to some of you is this. Like, we understand you have choices. So you kind of play this field. You kind of play this field. What's even worse, you have a conversation all at the same time, too. (laughs) 
and they're being led on. You're defrauding them. You're taking advantage of them. That doesn't honor. That doesn't love that person. You don't, you're not treating them as sister, your blood sister. I always tell brothers, I go, can you do that with your, your, your actual sister? Ooh, sick. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What you would not do with your own sister, don't do with others, because they are your sister in Christ. Can I get a good amen to that? And that will be another sermon or another seminar or another something where we need to raise up these men to take some steps of faith. So when you're like, I am, but they're rejecting me. Well, that's a whole different issue. We've got to work out some... We've got to work out some other stuff. Kind of changing your hairstyle. I don't know. We've got we to work out some stuff. And lastly, persevere with forgiveness and grace. That's something that's so needed. Because I know it's hard in God's family to be able to love everyone. That's what we're going to learn how to persevere with love and grace and forgiveness, to be able to forgive them again and again, to be able to give grace and show grace again and again. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is think about your relationship with Christ, how much he loves you and forgives you again and again, how much he shows grace to you again and again. And let that flow into your heart and you can show it to other people. I want to close with this video about a friendship that lasted many, many years. And the interesting part about this is because this friendship, it lasted because they pivoted when they faced something that was very difficult in their lives. And they ended up doing something together powerfully. I pray that all of us in this room will be able to pivot in the relationships that we have because we are the family of God. Let's watch this and then we'll close. Come on, let's stand together as we close out here. I wanted to show that because life always takes crazy turns and twists. And your friendship and relationship, maybe with your spouse, your children, even with some of your co-workers, just your parents, your children, relationships will change. And how we pivot and how we move into that direction with love, respect, because we know that we're part of God's family, that's going to change where your trajectory will be. I showed you that picture of my friends just over the years, and I'm just so thankful because there have been some key moments in all of our lives, in our friendship, that we were going through different things. But we were able to be there for one another because we had a commitment to Jesus Christ and a commitment to one another. Some of you are not part of God's family yet because you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So you might have a friendship, but like I said, unless Christ has given you life and you are born again, and that you are now part of this family as God the Father, then everything else is just going to be temporary. I hope you can take that step of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To those of us who are believers, I want to challenge us. Let's do relationships differently, friendships differently. Whether it's with your family, whether it's with life group members, whether it's with mentors, disciplers, or disciples, just 
people around you, let's, let's do differently. Because God, our Father, has given us a wonderful privilege of being part of this family here with brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you have some great friendships over the years. I pray that some of you will get married even in our church. I pray that you will have children. I pray that some of your parents will even come to know Jesus through your life. But what it's going to take is a commitment to look at it differently. And I pray that you'll start praying now. Let's challenge one another. Let's sharpen one another. I'm going to ask us to just bow our heads for a moment here. And as we close, I want you to think about some of the important relationships in your life. Is Christ the center? Is he in the center? Is he the reason why he brings you together? Do you focus on him? Do you make it about him? About his purposes? I'm also very aware that some of you have relationships that are broken or strained. And you cannot change the other person. Only God can. So that's why you got to pray. It's oftentimes through the difficulties when we learn to persevere, showing grace and love, that we're going to forge a stronger relationship. Let's think about Christ, what he has done for us, all his love, all his forgiveness, all his grace, again and again, as we look at that person so we can love them, forgive them, and give grace again and again. So Lord, I just thank you for just the possibility, the the avenue that you've made for us to be called children of God. And that we are part of this great family, the spiritual family. And I just pray the way we treat each other, the way we look at relationships will be so different. Different from the world, different from the way we've done it before. I just pray, Lord, here, just just a spirit of grace and forgiveness. I just sense that maybe some of you in this room, maybe some of your relationship with certain people might be strained. And you might have to take that first step to humble yourself, whether to ask for forgiveness or to just keep on forgiving. I, I I just feel like some of us in this room, if whatever relationship it is strained, Maybe on this Mother's Day, your relationship with your mom is strained. The most gracious thing to do is to call her and just let her know just you're thankful and you're thinking about her. That's showing grace. So Father, I pray that you, as you have set example through Jesus Christ, what it means to sacrifice and to give and to love, I pray that we'll be able to do that as your children. And I just pray for any discord that might have occurred in in, in this church, whether through life group or any other context, Lord. I just pray that you will break, Lord, any stronghold, that you will keep the bond of peace. Lord, we don't want to give Satan a stronghold in our lives, in this church, in our families, in our friendships. So God, right now, in the name of Jesus, whatever bitterness or whatever thing that we hold on, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to release it in you. 
God, we pray that we'll remind ourselves of who we are, children of God, as you are our Father, and people around us are brothers and sisters. May you use us, Lord, for greater things. We just thank you, Lord. I want to close out with that song that we've sang. I think we sang it at the all-night prayer. We're just asking God, uh, bring our hearts, our spirits into a spirit of unity. Uh, we just turn to somebody next to you and say, once again, you are my brother or sister and you're part of God's family. Amen. Let's pivot this coming season with new relationships, deeper relationships. And I believe that God's going to do some great things in our church and through our church. So let's just sing songs together as we close out here.